Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 19 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thanks to old friends for following me as we once again clumsily stagger into the ever more busy intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics. And welcome to new listeners who have recently joined our small but merry band of travelers. Speaking of fellow travelers, shout out to all of you who I saw on the recent Ligare online forum. It's always a pleasure to connect the names and faces of those who I've interacted with via messages and emails. And speaking of Ligare, Ligare.org is a network of people exploring the topic of psychedelics from traditional religious perspectives, specifically informed by the historical Christian tradition. Ligare offers opportunities for like-minded people to join in online forums and discussion groups to discuss the topic of psychedelics informed by our faith. If that sounds like the type of community you might be interested in, I encourage you to visit ligare.org. That's spelled L-I-G-A-R-E dot org. And sign up for their newsletter, where you will be invited to register for future events, where you can listen and chat with guest speakers and fellow Christians as we navigate this new and interesting landscape. Also, please continue to subscribe and share the podcast with others. And please leave comments and five-star reviews on your favorite listening platform, or leave comments on the YouTube channel or the website, thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. And if you would like to support the podcast and return some of the value it's brought into your life, you can do that by visiting thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support. Your contributions are always greatly appreciated and help me keep the show going. Last but not least, do not hesitate to reach out to me directly via email, contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com, or you can follow and direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at PsyChristianPod. I always value hearing from listeners. Today on the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, we're joined by Lewis Ungut author of the new book, Return of the Dragon, The Shocking Way Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies. Lewis also frequently writes on a wide range of topics, including culture, finance, philosophy, history, theology, and science. Lewis has an undergraduate degree in engineering, an MBA, and a Master's of Divinity degree and joins us today from his home near Detroit, Michigan, where he lives with his wife and three children. Today, we welcome Lewis Ungut to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Lewis, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Excited to uh, have this conversation. Yes, I am as well. Well, Lewis, begin by just telling us a little bit about where you come from, a little bit about your, maybe your home life as a child and whatever spiritual direction you had or, um, you know, affiliation as a Christian or maybe none of the above. Fill us in on a little bit about how you got started. 
Yeah, cool. Um, well, my early childhood, um, kind of no particular faith um, whatsoever. Um, my parents were always spiritual, kind of hippies kind of people, um, but were not in a particular Christian denomination or anything, but we're always open to open to spiritual things. They dabbled in a variety of groups like Christian science, which is not Christian and not science. And they dabbled with, um, you know, Hindu stuff and all that, but uh, nothing that would kind of be mainstream Christianity. And then when I was a teenager, they came to uh, the Catholic faith and uh, joined the Catholic church. But for me, um, I found that interesting, but I wasn't definitely wasn't all in as a teenager especially not being raised that way. And then I kind of ended up coming to faith through the witness of a friend um, while I was in college. That's a fairly extreme change of pace with your parents going from kind of a, a nebulous spiritual concept to Catholic faith. Um, that, that Although I see that happening often now, but um, I'm assuming we're talking about what, like the 80s, uh, 1980s when this uh, 90s but yeah yeah it was uh it was quite a while ago and definitely um yeah it was a big change for them you know it's interesting i don't know at the time you're just a kid and you don't understand the difference but and now in retrospect yeah i don't know all the thought processes that went into it but i know my mother was raised catholic so it may have been kind of just going home for her and i think like i said they never were at least in my memory they never were like anti-Christian or not, you know, they were, as a matter of fact, like I remember them watching TV evangelists, even when they weren't Christian, they were just kind of were interested and they, they were very open at the time. So, right. So what did you, what did you study in college? And is that something that you ended up doing later in life as a career? Or? Yeah, I've done a lot of, a lot of study at college. So I have a degree in engineering. Um, I have a degree in business and a master's degree in business and a master's degree in divinity and, you know, theology and philosophy. So. Okay. So is that something you pursued after you were uh, witnessed to by your friend and you pursued faith and yeah. Um, like I said, I was in college getting the engineering degree and I've done that career wise, I've also been involved in business. I've got a seminary degree, like I said, and done a variety of things in ministry and uh, have basically used all those degrees to some degree or another. And um, all helpful when it comes to like, now I'm writing books and like, those are all helpful backgrounds, business to some degree or another. But honestly, I've written on business as well and done I'm just kind of interested in culture and interested in the things that shape who we are as Americans, as Westerners, as human beings, where the future's going. I think having a diverse background of education, of understanding the science side of things, understanding the uh, economic side of things, and then from a Christian perspective, understanding scripture and church history and having that diverse background, I think is important. Like, and it's one of those things where I feel like in the old days, they used to emphasize having a, a varied background. Um, you look at, you know, the Enlightenment thinkers of Newton or Jefferson or or Ben Franklin, and 
very widely educated, very widely read. And in today's world, it's much more common to be kind of uh, siloed in your field and really know one thing very well, but not have a diverse background. So I'm grateful that I do have that diverse, but even it was a long way to get there. And yeah, I also try and read extremely diversely. So I read a lot and I read from a lot of different subjects and a lot of different fields and I think it's important to have a broad set of knowledge because it does help for me and, you know, for my books, like it helps, you know, if you only know your particular fields is sometimes you'll miss how the pieces fit together. And um, I think having the spectrum of, of knowledge and background helps draw all those pieces together in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, be done. Right. Yeah. I think the concept of, you know, centralizing, from the top down has, has kind of, it's definitely flavored the way we educate people. We tend not to desire to educate people in a well-rounded way. Now, like you said, like these uh, silos of thought, you know, we want a person to be just deeply invested in one category of education or career. And it, it kind of stifles the well-rounded understanding that people in, in generations past would have favored over a more centralized concept of, of educating and developing a young person. Well, could you tell us a little bit about your, your conversion to Christianity? How did, how did that manifest? Um, yeah, it was a long kind of winding road for me, but I, um, it's interesting. My parents, even before they identified as Christian in any way would read me like C.S. Lewis and Arnia books and all that. So I feel like it was God paving the way for me even before for that. Um, but yeah, I just had a friend in college that, you know, kept poking me with questions on why I believe what I believe and what I believe and what's truth and what's not truth. And, and really just started trying to understand that for myself reading scripture and kind of as I went through all that, you know, praying a lot and realizing that it was true and, you know, just coming, coming to Christ that way. And then from there, just getting involved in the church. What particular denomination was that you were involved with at that point? So I've been honestly all over the spectrum denominationally. I've, um, served in Baptist churches. I My seminary degree actually was a Methodist degree. I've served in Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Um, I still have a lot of affection for Catholics and interest in Eastern Orthodoxy. So I would consider myself one denomination. Um, I know that's weird, but I'm honestly kind of open to... I realize there's very good Christians in a lot of different traditions within Christianity that are smart and maybe know more than I do about the arguments one way or the other. So I, at this point in time in my life, I'm a little bit just humble in terms of learning and, and understanding what, where people are coming from. Um, I always, I say to my, the people around me, the people I love, the people I talk to Christianity about is that I'm 100% sure Christianity is true. So I'm 100% sure scripture is true i'm 100 percent sure that jesus is god and lord and savior i'm i'm sure of the trinity i'm sure of the creeds i'm not 100 percent sure which denominations 
know, like right. I'm not sure who's right, but um, the faith as a whole, I'm I'm 100 sure on the particular denomination. And that's not me saying that those things, those questions aren't important. Like I do think they are important. A lot of them have a lot of practical consequences on how the church interacts with the world, how we as Christians interact with the world. I don't mean to minimize those at all. I'm just honest about where I am in my life right now and trying to do my best to earnestly pursue truth and earnestly pursue uh, the Christian life. And I just do that with openness. I'm currently attending a Lutheran church. Mm. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm a Christian who just happens to be living out my faith in an Episcopal church right now. You know, that's kind of the way I look at it. And I may... I may live the rest of my Christian life out in that setting, and that's okay. But like you, I've been in Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, so definitely, uh, you know, flirted with Lutheranism, you know, so I I have a, a broad respect for the church universal, and I don't think any of us, you know, have a patent on the truth. Honestly, I think each denomination tends to maybe anchor to one aspect of the Christian faith and live that out and embody it really well, you know, at the detriment of other important things. You know, we all do that. So I think, honestly, the closer we get to embracing each other as brothers and sisters and be less um, derogatory towards each other's failures or inconsistencies or whatever. And that's like you said, it's not to say that those things aren't important and they don't have really important value. And we probably should pursue avoiding error at all costs, but, but do that in a way that is patient and loving and respectful of how we come to our conclusions. So where did you first engage with things like psychedelics? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Where did that show up on your radar and what did you think about it? Yeah, I talk about this a little bit in my book. When I was in high school, early college experience, I, like a lot of people, smoked marijuana. I um, did mushrooms several times, mescaline, LSD, um, just circle friends I was in. And um, that's those. that's what was going on. It was I don't know why people were doing them. You know, I know that from our end, we were kind of pursuing what we thought was opening our minds up, what we thought was kind of growing our consciousness or whatever. And yeah, I think we got those ideas from rock music or whatever. You know, I, I'm not exactly sure where those ideas came from, but that's kind of what we were doing and what we were messing with and just the the circle of friends we had. So that was my first experience um, with psychedelics. And what I found personally, and this is way before I had any theological reason or Christian reason even, felt uncomfortable with experiences that I had. Um, I felt that it was separating me from reality. I felt like it was taking me out of this world in a way that I decided I didn't like. I felt like as I was doing those, I would come down and I still would feel like I was out of this world a little bit. And some part of me just loves humanity and I love the world around me. And I, I just felt uncomfortable feeling like I was separate from it. At that point in time, for no religious reasons whatsoever, um, I set aside all psychedelics, even stopped smoking pot, um, and just decided 
that it was bad for my brain and bad for my soul, even though I, like I said, I didn't really have a religious reason for, for thinking that and just decided not to do it. So that was, like I said, mid midway through college is when I decided, Hey, that I'm not going to do this anymore. Okay. So we're thinking like late, late nineties, early two thousands, like that kind of yeah, time frame. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's important. I don't think people who are just coming into this topic today can understand how little information there was back then. Like you, I honestly don't know how I was informed about these things. Well, first of all, I wasn't very informed at all about, about it, but um, you know, just maybe the older people in your peer group had access to those things and they shared them with you. Like you just, you just didn't have any scientific information, any medical information. It was all just kind of urban legend and hearsay and, to some degree, kind of the dark underbelly of society that was, you know, sharing these things with you. And so we had such little information compared to today. Um, Anyone can do a Google search now and learn more in five minutes than we would have been able to learn in years of talking to random, you know, grungy hippies or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's no, there's a lot of truth to that is the you basically were in a situation where it was the, a lot of word of mouth, everything you learned was word of mouth and some of it was, some of it was not. So mm-hmm. you were getting a little bit of, of information from, uh, you know, like the government that was true and false. And you were getting some information from the illegal side that was a little bit of true and false. And so it was really hard to know, honestly, what to believe. Yeah, no, it's as true. I, you know, I think I always laugh that you know because now I don't know how it is in Arkansas, but in Michigan they've legalized everything. You know, legalized pot and decriminalized a lot of the psychedelics a lot. Where now you drive around, I, I always tell people like when I was a kid, the billboards all were anti-drug and now the billboards are all trying to sell you drugs (laughs) like that's like you drive around every billboard is trying to sell you drugs so yeah it's funny how um and scary honestly but how much things have changed in the last 20 years or so yeah the the south is a little behind y'all chronologically in that regard but it's it's heading that direction and I, i have mixed feelings about that because i feel like even if these things were uber positive and there was no downside whatsoever, it seems like the people who are pushing this really have, you know, their own bottom line as the agenda and not the improvement of individuals or society. You know, it seems to be like a, a little bit of a gold rush, you know, and that, that gives me a lot of pause. If you're, if you're having to buy billboards, you know, to convince people, to come into your store, I, you know, it's um, it just seems a little, a little forced uh, to me. There's a lot of money, a lot of money. It's uh, it's a big billion dollar industry, so it's uh, worth the billboard for a lot of people to put it up. But yeah, it's crazy. Every billboard in Michigan is like advertising it, so it's pretty, pretty unavoidable. Right. I, I mean, I don't have a problem with alcohol used in moderation. But, you know, I've never passed a billboard for Kerr's Light and thought those people are trying to enlighten society. You know, <laughs> you know they believe in. Yeah, the, that's um... true. The, the selling point, <laughs> the alcohol doesn't pretend to 
improve or enlighten anybody, right? Alcohol, if anything, everyone understands it's doing that, right? <laughs> With you know, some of these substances, the, the promise is much higher. It's a much loftier promise than than alcohol promises. So right. at best, alcohol promises a, a good time. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And uh, sometimes it provides that at a steep cost. So, <clears throat> well, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about the inspiration for your most recent work and tell us a little bit about the book and your current perspective on both the, the history of psychedelic use and its current manifestation, how you see it. Yeah, thank you. So I I wrote this book, just completed it four months ago, five months ago, um, called Return of the Dragon, um, The Shocking Way Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies. And it is focused on, in many ways, it's a history book. It's a book about the way that religion and psychedelics have interacted going back to pre-bible days you know early you know ancient near east days to today but it's also a discussion of should there be warning signs about this um you and i were talking before we started about how fast all of this is moving and and kind of what we just said with the billboards where it's you know just in those last 20 years we went from anti-drug billboards to pro-drug billboards all over the place you know, like I, I talk about in the book about the fact that, you know, pretty much everybody, everybody in the the world kind of collectively, Western world anyway, collectively agreed marijuana is not a problem. And we, you know, nine out of 10 people or something like that are for at least partial legalization of marijuana, if not full recreational legalization of marijuana. So it's an amazing shift where, you know, 20 years ago, it was nine out of 10 were against it. Um, so the, the shift has happened with amazing breathtaking speed, similar stuff happening with psychedelics, you know, heavier psychedelics like LSD, uh, ayahuasca, DMT, magic mushrooms, um, et cetera. Um, so a similar shift. So the inspiration for this book for me was actually started with the drug DMT, um, which is dimethyltryptamine, the active ingredient in a psychedelic called ayahuasca. Um, ayahuasca was a drug developed in South America where the Inca were. And I started hearing about DMT. I think my wife saw a documentary on it and she was like, Hey, you should check this out. It's pretty interesting. And then I, I know I heard Joe Rogan talk about it on his podcast. I heard about it in a couple other contexts. And it is, if you haven't looked into DMT, I know you probably have, but some of your audience or whatever, it's super interesting that people will, on DMT, they'll see entities, what they describe as sometimes elves, uh, machine elves is one of the terms that gets used. They'll see serpents sometimes, serpent entities. They'll see joker uh, entities. They'll see you know, a variety of animal, human hybrids, that kind of stuff. And then they'll also see um, what they describe as like heavenly geometry. So very similar to what you see in like Mesoamerican art with the zigzags and the squares inside of squares, that kind of stuff. They'll see that while they're on DMT. And I remember hearing that and finding it very interesting. It's just like a pretty fascinating thing that you take this drug and you see these entities and and you see these shapes and that kind of thing. And my initial reaction was like, that's a pretty interesting brain phenomenon. I wonder what causes that in the brain and that kind of thing. 
But then as I like it came across my radar a couple more times and I was like, that is super interesting. Like it's more it seems like more than a brain phenomenon, maybe. Um, So I started just reading everything I could read on the subject. I read countless personal testimonies about what people experienced on DMT and ayahuasca. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably just because it's the same active ingredient, even though they are different in terms of the length of time you spend in that state, et cetera. So it's a super interesting thing. And one of the very, very interesting things I talk about in my book is that people that do DMT, often after they come down, they say, what I saw was real. The entities I saw were real. And they were continue to exist, even though I'm not high anymore, even though I'm, I'm down from the drug. I know that those entities are out there. They still exist. They're in some other dimension, some other realm, but they're there. And I remember hearing that and saying, wow, that is uh, that's amazing. And another thing is that a majority of atheists that take DMT cease to be atheists. They take DMT. So they'll take it. They'll see something in that world and they'll say, okay, there's more to this life than I thought there was to this life. So it's a very fascinating thing. And so I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole of just like, what is this? What's going on with this? What are they? If they are real, what are they? What are these entities? And then at some point in time, I kind of opened it up to psychedelics as a whole um, because there's a lot of overlap. I, you know, I, I would say DMT slash ayahuasca is the strongest of psychedelics, but definitely not unique among psychedelics. There's, you know, LSD and even edibles, cannabis, you know, like the, you can get very strong reactions where you do see entities, you do have those hallucinations, you do have similar experiences, geometry, et cetera, that, that you're seeing on other psychedelic sources as a whole. So I kind of opened it up and I started researching that as a whole. What really flipped me out with my book um, and really kind of like said, okay, I've got to write this book. And I wrote an article on this um, in early last year, I think may, either late 2021 or early 2022 called Who Are the Entities? But what really got me to say, I have to write a book on this was when I remembered my Greek training, so I have a seminary degree, um, as I mentioned to you earlier, and I studied Koine Greek. I studied the the language of the, the New Testament, and it hit me that I was like, I can't, can't remember what I was looking up. I, I think I looked, I just Googled, what does the Bible say about drugs? And I got a bunch of passages about not drinking too much wine. Right. So I got like, uh, don't, you know, don't drink too much wine. You know, wine is a brawler. You know, like there's a lot of passages about not getting too drunk. I think a um, lot of Christians are Googling yeah. that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot, a lot of passages on that. And I said, well, if that's true, why don't Christians do psychedelics? Like, why is it, why do we consider it, you know, and maybe not you personally, obviously, uh, but like, why do a lot of Christians view it as just completely unchristian? to go to the church picnic and, and break out a joint, right? Like, why is that not a normal normal thing to do? And then I realized from my Greek training that the Bible does say a lot of stuff about drugs, a lot of stuff about drugs, but it is it gets mixed up with the English translation. So there's a word throughout the New Testament that is pharmakia. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's where we get the word pharmacy from. It's throughout the, the Bible, and it ends up getting translated more often than not as witchcraft, sorcery, something along those lines, divination, it, it gets translated as. But it if you look up the Greek lexicon, so the Bible, New Testament was written in Greek. You look up the Greek lexicon, and you say, what is the definition of pharmakia? 
And it says, I'll give you an example it's from Freeburg Lexicon. It says pharmacia, and this is the first definition. So this isn't definition number eight. This isn't definition number one. It says one who prepares and uses drugs for magical purposes or ritual, witchcraft, sorcery, poisoner, magician. The Laudanita Lexicon says the following, um, it, it, the first definition, the use of drugs for any kind of magical effect, sorcery, magic. Um, Liddell Scott Lexicon says, Pharmacia is the use of drugs, comma, potions, or spells. So here we have like this definition of pharmacia that's kind of using drugs for spiritual purposes. And it's throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament. And then the other interesting thing is that there's a Old Testament translation in Greek called the Septuagint that was widely used by the apostles. They actually, more often than not, when they quote the Old Testament, they quote the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And the Septuagint in Greek also has pharmakia throughout it with insane warnings against it. You know, so the the Bible, I kind of go through in my book of like all the warnings against pharmakia of like, don't use drugs for spiritual purposes. And, you know, if you do, it will lead nations astray. If you do... Uh, the person that uses drugs for spiritual purposes should be put to death, right? The other interesting thing is like there's this combination of pharmakia and human sacrifice that keeps coming up in the Bible where um, it will it'll warn, don't use drugs for spiritual purposes or pass your children through the fire, right? Like, And just this weird blending of human sacrifice and pharmakia. And I for me, that was like, whoa, like there's this giant other thing that has been kind of missed within Christendom, within the history. And then I really started doing the research on what the history was. And I, what I found was I read a book called The Serpent Symbol in the Near East, I read a, a variety of books on shamanism. And what I found was like the reason the word for drugs and witchcraft are the same is that it was very common and still remains common in many kind of shamanistic cultures to mix drugs with divination, you know, being a medium with the occult practices as a way of seeing into that other world, as a way to see spirits, a way to see entities, a way to see your dead relatives, a way to see uh, a prophet of the future. And it was incredibly common. So it was common in... Ancient Greece, you, most likely used in Rome, although it was a secret cult, but most likely used in Rome, certainly was used in Northern Europe, almost certainly was used in Egypt, definitely was used in Asia, absolutely lots of documented stories of it being used in Mesoamerica. So it was kind of like this universal religion of shamanism they would mix together the occult and drugs. And, and there's that's why the Greek word had kind of the same word for both. Pharmakia was witchcraft and it was drug use. And so it's not like a case of, hey, you know, you can translate the word in English, bark can mean the sound a dog makes, or it can mean the outer layer of a tree. Same word, but very different meanings. That's not the case. Well, pharmakia is not that they're two different meanings. It's they're two different aspects of the same practice that people were identifying. So it's not like the translator is making a decision. Is Are they talking about drugs here? Or are they talking about witchcraft? The answer to that would be yes. They were talking about both, right? Like they were talking, you know, it was, it was witchcraft drugs, right? It's a shamanism. And more often than not, that involved drug use. Yeah. Those were the, the tools of the trade, so to speak. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
And so I don't know how much you want me to go into the book, but I'll kind of give you a quick overview of like one of the interesting things I found that was a little bit terrifying was that, you know, in chapter six of my book, I talk about the fact that throughout history, it's kind of an interesting thing. And I've, I've heard other people talk about this, but throughout history, there's been a worship of serpent entities. Um, you see this almost everywhere you go. There's almost there's a serpent god in almost every culture, widespread. Um, I kind of detail how often it was that there were serpent entities. I mentioned that book by Leslie Wilson, who's a Yale scholar that was discussing um, the serpent entity in the ancient Near East. But the serpent entities tended to ask for human sacrifice. That's the interesting thing. So like Leslie Wilson talks about in ancient Near East would be like the area of the Bible, you know, where the Old Testament was written and New Testament for that matter. But just talking about some of the gods and the entities there that they worshipped and this serpent, one was called the good demon, one was called Baal. Baal was a serpent entity. Ashtara was a serpent entity. And all of these gods like asked for human sacrifice. Every single one was like, hey, we want you to sacrifice your children. We want, And so it kind of makes sense in the Old Testament when you start to hear them warning against human sacrifice and they start to hear them asking, you know, telling them, no, don't send your kids through the fire. Like, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's a prohibition we don't really need to say in modern day America is like, hey, don't sacrifice your kids. Um, but back then it was like, hey, don't do this because it was so common. It was such a widespread practice. But the combination of the serpent entity and the combination of pharmacia and the combination of human sacrifice are three things that go together over and over and over again throughout the world. Possibly no better example of that in ancient Mesoamerica where um, the Aztecs would sacrifice potentially as much as 250,000 people a year uh, up on their temples. They would rip out their hearts where they're still alive children, you know, just horrific, horrific stuff. And it's interesting when the Spanish showed up in what is modern day Mexico and, and were interacting with the Aztecs, they specifically said that it was their psychedelic drugs that were leading them to be violent. There's hand-drawn pictures of Aztecs eating mushrooms with the devil behind their head. Um, it's pretty, pretty crazy. Um, I've got some of that on my website, uh, but it's very, very interesting. And so for me, like th this was all very interesting, but it kind of got back to that question of on the DMT. So it gets back to that question of like, here's these people, atheists, people like Joe Rogan, you know, just random people will take DMT, they'll come back and they'll say these are real. And I, for me, it was a question of like, okay, well, who are the entities? If they are real, are they good or the bad or what are they? And um, the Bible kind of warning against it as a Christian, I found that disturbing, right? So maybe they're not good entities, right? They're most likely not good entities. And if they're not good, where do they lead us? And and that's where that dark path of, you know, it seems like, you know, one of the things Revelation warns about, uh, the book of Nahum warns against is that pharmacia will lead whole nations astray. And it seems like in history, there's been a lot of nations that have had this dark blend of pharmacia, serpent worship, human sacrifice that's happened over and over and over again that should be, in my mind, should be sending alarm bells up to everybody of like, whoa, wait a second. If these entities are real, what are we messing with, right? Like we're not, this isn't, yeah, I think most people, including most Christians, we say, what a weird brain phenomenon. It's weird that we're imagining these serpents. It's weird that we're 
have these spiritual experiences that we have, but it's all in our brain. But what if it's not? What if it's not in our brains? What if what if we're truly interacting with another dimension, real entities out there? Though it changes the stakes a little bit in my mind right. or or a lot. Well, as moderns, and I say that as you know, people in the last two to five centuries, we're an anomaly in human history. Throughout human history, people took for granted that there were spirits among us, both good and bad regardless of religion or culture, you know, they viewed things in that paradigm. And post-enlightenment thinking has led us to relegate those things to the area of myth and legend. And I, I think that is to a great detriment to us. And I share your concern because, you know, I see people today who are atheists, non-religious, non-spiritual. They have these experiences and then they they embrace the spiritual, but they have no plumb line for positive or negative. It's all just spiritual. And yeah. I, I personally believe that there are positive and negative influences, both on humans as individuals and as cultures or nations, as you're reflecting upon there. These entities do have the real potential to lead us astray. If we, as a majority, embrace those negative entities, for lack of a better word, uh, I realize the words positive and negative are somewhat subjective, and I'm using them objectively a little. That may be confusing, but that's a conversation that we'll avoid for the moment, what, what positive and negative is. One of my main fears is as people engage this, this topic and these practices, they're doing so without any preconceived notions or any bearing on what is healthy for individuals or society. They're just moving forward without any kind of preparation or any kind of, of knowledge of ethical, moral, good or evil judgment. And I fear where that could potentially lead us. One of the things I talk about in my book is that in modern day language, if we don't just assume spiritual is fake, but we say, okay, I had a spiritual experience, that's almost always considered a positive thing. So like if I say, oh, I had a such a, I went to this yoga retreat and had this great spiritual experience and people are like, oh, great. That's fantastic. A spirit, spiritual is good, right? And I think you're right. That discernment that has historically been in place of spirit could be good or it could be bad. Right. And so the question should be, okay, what spirit did you have this interaction with? And was that a good spirit or a bad spirit? And was it or a tricky spirit? Right. Like what what is that spirit trying to do in your life? And I think there's an incredible danger there. Um, one of the um things I did in my book was I talked about people that went on psilocybin. They did the psilocybin study that Johns Hopkins did. And one of the um books that I read was by Michael Pohl and How to Change Your Mind. And he interviewed a lot of the people that had been part of that um, psilocybin project. And psilocybin is the active ingredient for magic mushrooms, by the way. Um, so he interviewed some of the people that had been part of that. And they all had like lessons that the spiritually taught them. So decided being a military contractor and become a Zen Buddhist teacher. Um, one um, decided to divorce her husband. So they all had these lessons that they had learned from the spiritual uh, experience. And 
it was kind of presented as, oh, it, isn't it interesting? They've learned, they had the spiritual experience and they learned these great lessons and they changed their life um, as a result. And what I point out in my book is like, that conclusion depends on you assuming those spirits were good, right? Like if those spirits were evil, if they hate you, if they hate society, if they want to destroy you, you should not trust that spirit telling you to quit, change careers, right? Or divorce your husband or like you can't just trust these spirits out of the gate unless you know for a fact that they are good spirits, which in Christian understanding would just be angels, right? So unless you know they're an angel from God, you should not be trusting them. And yet people have these spiritual experiences and they just go with it. It's like, oh, that's a good thing. And it's that lack of discernment that is incredibly dangerous, like incredibly dangerous. And I think when the Bible talks about pharmacia leading whole nations astray, that's what will happen, right? It, you you start going down that road of trusting, just blindly trusting spirits you interact with, and it will lead you astray and ultimately um, a whole nation, whole whole society astray. I think one reason these experiences are so winsome is because our modern society is so divorced from the spiritual. And so to live for generations with this materialistic, just earthy mindset of, you know, we're all just biological beings, which have a finite time span here on the planet. When your body dies, you die. That's the end of you. Even people who embrace that, no, deep down, that's not very comforting. And, and there's something deep inside of you that tells you there's something beyond this body. And then, but you never experience it. And then you have this psychedelic experience or this tantric yoga experience or a deep breathing uh, exercise experience. And you, you get a more tangible vision of the reality of the spiritual. It's hard not to assume that's positive unless you were overwhelmingly scared or frightened by it. It, it, you know, it would be to some degree, a breath of fresh air because it would confirm all those thoughts you've had about something beyond the material existence. Yeah. But we don't have, <laughs> we don't have a metric by which to judge the good and the bad because we've even denied its existence for so long that even like you mentioned amongst amongst Christians, we don't even have a context for how to categorize these things. Yeah. And I, one of the things I find when I talk to people about this, they, they kind of laugh at the idea that these might be bad entities. And one of the things they say is, well, they're, they're nice. They've helped me. They've guided me. They've dealt with my anxiety or whatever they there's been they've been helpful and one of the things i i talk about is that first of all in the bible demons tend to be less scary than angels angels freak people out demons don't right so you look and when you look at like uh the serpent with eve for example he is thoughtful he is suggesting she opens her mind. He's challenging her intellectually. He's offering her promises of how to become a better person and, and have a better experience in life. Very thoughtful, helpful entity that serpent was. And with Jesus, the, the devil comes to him and he is helpful. He's offering him how to get bread. He's offering him how to get power. He's offering so very helpful, thoughtful 
intellectual mind-opening entities um, throughout scripture versus when angels come before people, they like collapse in fear and the angel has to like reassure them, hey, don't fear. It's going to be okay. Like Almost every um, time they start, they begin the conversation yeah. with do not be afraid. <laughs> yeah. So like there's a big part of me that with any spiritual experience, if your first feeling is to be reassured and feel intellectual or feel enlightened or whatever, it's probably not a good story. <laughs> just like you, you've got to really you got to have that biblical perspective of like if if there's no divine fear involved it's probably not going to be good that's probably going to be leading you astray and yeah so the, i mean that's for me that's a giant warning bell with everything that's going on in society and i feel like one of the thing reason i wanted to get this book out and get it out as quickly as possible was that i feel there is an overwhelming movement um, in society down this road where it's getting promoted by Joe Rogan. It's who most popular podcast in the world promotes it almost every show. It's amazing how often he talks about the positive benefits of DMT, the positive benefits of ayahuasca and mushrooms and, and marijuana. It's getting promoted by sports figures like Aaron Rodgers talked about his DMT experience as a born again experience. Literally said he woke up like it was he had been born the first time um, when he had it. It's getting promoted by, believe it or not, the World Economic Forum and Davos, not this last time, but the year before that, they had a psychedelic breakout session. So it's getting promoted at the global level as well. And legalization is happening fast. Oregon's decriminalized. Michigan has has decriminalized in certain municipalities. There's legislation on, you know, happening in California to decriminalize. So it's just between the cultural pressures, the legalization pressures, it, everything that happened with marijuana five years ago is going to happen with LSD and psilocybin and DMT in the next five years. And that's the main reason I wrote this book was like, we better be ready for it. People better be aware of the risks and the dangers um, involved. And if they're not, look out. Right. I mean, that's my goal. I'm trying to get Christians to talk about it because it's coming like an avalanche on society. And if if we just continue to walk with our, you know, our say no to drugs blinders on, that may or may not be helpful for us as individuals, but we at least have to recognize the societal movements and God calls us to be dynamic. You know, we're not called to be of the world, but we are here in the world. So recognizing these cultural shifts and these societal movements, the church needs to be prepared to either embrace or react or correct, or at the very least, be ready to teach and heal people who are the casualties of such things, should there be. Um, and there no doubt will be people who have traumatic experiences. And so we need to be there prepared to show people the way and to counteract any negative forces in the world. You know, that's, that's, that's our job to heal and to confront Satan. You know? So one thing, if you, if you don't mind elaborating a little bit on this, that I, that I felt was very powerful in your book is the connection between these ancient pagan societies, and you mentioned it a little bit, uh, human sacrifice, and how in, in the modern world, we don't have human sacrifice organized in such a way where we're paying homage to deities. 
or at least we don't perceive it that way. But throughout history, that was very common, almost ubiquitous. Uh, the concept of sacrificing human life to appease something or someone. Uh, yeah. As Christians, we recognize that's necessary for us as well. We had to have a human sacrifice on our behalf, you know, but our belief is that that sacrifice settled once and for all that need for ongoing sacrifice. But you connect this concept with the modern day practice of abortion to some degree. Would you mind elaborating yes. on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you touched on what kind of a big part of my concern is that if these are real entities, right, which sounds like a crazy question, but like I, I legitimately believe they are. And people that take DMT and take ayahuasca believe they're real entities. If they're real entities and they're not good entities and they're human hating entities, well, it makes sense. They would do things to screw up lives, to destroy. But ultimately, the best thing that someone that hates humanity would want is the death of innocence, right? And the death of perfectly innocent is we think about the sacrifice of Christ for us, perfectly innocent, right? That's a desire the of the beast, um, the most desirable thing um, that they would want. And throughout history, you see that over and over again, this desire to destroy the innocence. And you see it, like you said, two pagan gods. You also see infanticide is normalized in most societies. In ancient Rome, infanticide, um, there's a letter from the time of Christ that says, it, just a guy writing to his wife, he's off on business, and he says, if the baby's born while I'm gone, or if it's a boy, great. If it's a girl, uh, leave it out to be exposed. So in other words, just toss it out on the street and that infanticide widespread, almost every single culture. Christianity, interestingly, from day one, if you read the Didache that was written in 90 AD, roughly, um, the Didache, first extra biblical book we have for the most part. And it it says in there, it says, do not commit abortion or uh, infanticide. Um, so like there's this from day one, Christianity said, we can't do that. You know, we can't be a part of that. Um, so fast forward to kind of today. So throughout Christian history, abortion is not a modern debate. Abortion's just been wrong in Christian teaching. Like we've never been for abortion and Christian societies have never had any kind of legal abortion practice. But Margaret Sanger, who a lot of people will know is the founder of Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in America, it gets a lot of federal funds. Um, technically, they say they don't use those federal funds for um, abortion, but money is fungible. So they can you know, spend that to upkeep their buildings that then commit abortion or whatever. So, But anyway, Margaret Sanger, basically, she was a eugenicist. So she wanted to get rid of the poor people, black people, people of questionable racial backgrounds, children of prostitutes, et cetera. So she wanted to improve society. There was a big eugenicist movement at the beginning of the 20th century. And she was part of that where she wanted to just help society by getting rid of the undesirables. And she was very in favor of abortion. She believed in abortion, thought it was a good thing. So when she decided to start Planned Parenthood, she sought out kind of advice from her lover and mentor, a guy named Havlock Ellis. And Havlock Ellis gave her advice. And one of the pieces of advice he gave her was mapping out how to do Planned Parenthood and not have it get destroyed immediately. And um, very tricky method that he used. He basically said, yeah, I'm for abortion as well, but people are 
you know, we live in too Christian of a society. People are are not going to accept abortion out of the gate. So let's start with birth control only. And then once we kind of get established, then we'll move on to abortion, which ultimately is exactly what Planned Parenthood did. So very insightful, evil, but insightful um, approach by Havelock Ellis um, to do that. Now, here's the crazy thing about Havelock Ellis. This was early 20th century that these, they were having these conversations. This was well before the hippie movement, et cetera. He was a pioneer with psychedelics. He wrote on psychedelics. He also was interested in the occult. He like loved to, he, he wrote one of the most interesting papers on mescaline. He used to test it on his friends. This was a guy that was deep into pharmacae. And here he is as maybe the root cause. If, if not the pioneer, maybe one of the pioneers behind the abortion industry in America today. And he was the only guy doing pharmacae at the time, which is, I saw that was kind of like after I'd wrapped up my book, I found that out and it was mind blowing to me. And it was mind blowing that like, oh my goodness, like, because in some ways, like you could say my book's inconsistent. Like I'm criticizing the Aztecs for killing 250,000 people a year, but here we with abortion, we kill a million people. So maybe it's not pharmacae or whatever. And it's interesting that like at the end, like I realized, oh my goodness, even our killing, which you're right, is not like explicitly to gods. Although I would, I would argue the the God of self, the sacrifice for your own way of life, the sacrifice for um, your own enlightenment or betterment that women consistently say are their reasons for having abortions. I would argue that's a sacrifice of a type, but it was mind blowing to me that at the core of this modern movement of abortion was someone practicing pharmacae. And uh, yeah, so if the entities are real and if they hate humans, it makes all the sense in the world. I believe uh, you and and Lucas discussed this on a recent episode of your podcast as well, right? We probably did. Yeah, 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 we did. We've had a couple of conversations um, about the history of uh, the abortion industry. And yeah, it's an interesting topic. And there's a lot more to be delved into there. Like I said, that was... As I was wrapping up my book, I included a couple of paragraphs on it. But, you know, if I was going to do a second edition, I would probably in- include a whole chapter on that subject because it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Just that you pointed out, the sheer numbers are kind of staggering. We look back on human sacrifice in days of old and we recognize the, how horrific that is. But, yeah, man, in some ways, those ancient pagans were smarter than us. I mean... They were at least paying homage to a deity. I get what are we paying homage to? Convenience, uh, our personal finances, uh, bodily autonomy. I mean, a demon's a higher god than that. But that's probably a topic for another day. Yeah, and I, I feel like we have embraced as a society, we've embraced kind of that new age, I am a god kind of thing. So I, I think to some degree, it's a sacrifice to the god of self, right? To some degree, it's uh, hey, this is getting in the way of my best life, and uh, I I have to kill this baby, but it's um, you know, it's going to make me a better person. It's going to make my life better. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, sir, if you can summarize what you would tell Christians who are trying to learn more about psychedelics, about how that may or may not be a positive or negative influence in their own life or in society as a whole? 
what might the maybe your elevator speech on the subject might be yeah so the i mean the big point of my book is just to provide a warning i start off talking about the pandora's box where um it was a gift and and she was told pandora was so told don't open it and she couldn't help herself and she opened it up and and all the horrors of the world came out on her and i i feel like we've been given a warning and the warning is scripture the warning is church history the warning is the history of other cultures mesoamerica etc and the warning is we're not playing with something that modifies your brain here we're not playing with something that is a brain phenomenon um, we're playing with something deeper and something darker and for me my message to everyone is be as careful as skeptical as cautious as you can possibly be um, because this is not a joke you know that's one of the big lies of the the pro pot movement is it's always done as a joke you know, there's all those movies that are these high times you know wherever and you know uh, up in smoke or, you know cheech and chong etc mm -hmm. it's all painted as a joke and even lsd and and psychedelics are this this joke of like oh the, and my statement is this is not a joke this is not something to play around with this is something that the bible warns uh, about with insane levels of warning to and but even take the Bible out of it. Just look at the history of Mesoamerica. Look at what happened to them and how they got there. Look at what the Spanish observed when they showed up and just realize there's some danger here that us diving in like it's a joke, us diving in because Joe Rogan, a comedian and MMA wrestler is is like encouraging us to do it. Like we can't do this. It's, it's a path we should not be going down. And if we do, God help us. Well, Lewis, I appreciate your perspective and I appreciate your concerns. And I thank you for joining me today to discuss it. I definitely recommend your book, regardless of where a person falls on ultimately how they view psychedelics. I think your work is definitely something everyone should take into consideration. If you don't want to go through life with blinders and you want to see the whole picture, I think denying your perspective is disregarding a whole one whole side of the story. And I think it's incumbent upon Christians if they're going to get a well-rounded understanding of psychedelics and where they might lead us as a society and as individuals. It's important that we get the full story because the media and uh, the billboards are currently only giving us one side of the story. And I'm not, I'm not denying that they're, can't be positive benefits. And um, and that's something you even mentioned in your book. We don't have to delve into that here, but you acknowledge that even in the grand scheme of, of you viewing these things as a, as a more likely negative impact on society, you acknowledge that benefits can be had, although maybe temporary or self-serving, there are uh, benefits to be had from certain substances. But I think your perspective on an individual's experience not being understood in the totality of the impact is, is important. So where can people go to find more about your book, your work? I know you have a Substack where you, where you share a, a lot of yes. Yeah, uh, so Substack sub is uh, Lewis on Git, and Lewis is spelled with an E, so it's L-E-W-I-S, and last name is U-N-G-I-T dot Substack.com, and I have 
writings that I'm putting up there, um, addendums to the book and, you know, some additional information on other subjects. I also have additional books that I'm working on um, right now, working on a book about uh, technology and science and kind of some of the occult and spiritual elements to technology and science that I think gets ignored a lot. So people uh, can learn about all that on my Substack, lewisungit.substack.com. My book is available on Amazon. There's an audio book. If people are like prefer to listen than to read, um, that's available. If you type into Amazon, Return of the Dragon, and then my last name, it pops up number one. So Return of the Dragon, Ungit. If you don't include the Ungit, you will get uh, Kung Fu movies from the 70s. So. <laughs> Which might also be enjoyable. Who knows? There we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will definitely link to all that. I'll link to your your podcast, the uh, Lewis and Lucas podcast. Uh, how would you how would you describe that? Uh, Y'all kind of uh, do commentary on current events, uh, Christianity. Uh, yeah, we do a little bit of everything. Um, I've known uh, Lucas for a long time, um, and we just enjoy chatting. And uh, sometimes we'll have guests on, and and we'll talk about whatever we feel like talking about. So we'll sometimes pick a subject and talk about that. Sometimes we'll talk uh, current events. Sometimes we'll just chat with. You know, individuals we find interesting. You should come on at some point in time. We'd love to have you on. But um, I feel like people that just are interested in a kind of a unique perspective on culture and um, politics. Um, it's a an interesting, fun podcast that we put out every Monday. So please, uh, please check that out as well. Yeah, I'm just delved into it. I'm enjoying it. So I think my listeners might as well. And uh, you know, is there a preferred method where people might? uh engage with you uh, you and i met on twitter and uh you you seem pretty active on there and like to i am uh, stir yeah, up a little trouble I don't know. No. <laughs> yeah i am active on on twitter and i do stir up trouble so yeah you can uh my uh dms are open right now so um anybody that wants to uh reach out can reach out to me there um i'm also accessible via my sub stack i think there's a way to contact me there but Twitter is probably the easiest way. So um, uh, Twitter is, my handle is I am Lewis U. So I am uh, Lewis with an E and U as in the first initial. My last name is my handle. So someone actually stole Lewis Unget from me. I'm trying to get that back, but uh, yeah. Uh, we gotta love that. Yeah, People holding our our uh, preferred names hostage. You know. Exactly. Uh, well, Lewis, thanks for joining me. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I hope everyone will go check out your stuff and I'll be linking to it in the show notes. Uh, so hopefully some people go your direction and I look forward to, uh, to future content. So Awesome. Hey, thank you so much, Clint. Really appreciate it. This was a fun and interesting conversation. So really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, let's do it again. Sounds good. All right. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation, and I would like to once again express my gratitude to Lewis for joining us to share his thoughts on Christian faith and psychedelics. Although I don't see eye to eye with Lewis on this topic, and I personally believe that the use of psychedelics doesn't necessarily involve participating in sorcery or witchcraft, I cannot stress how important it is to heed his warnings about approaching the use of psychedelics with a cavalier mindset. These are potent and powerful substances, and most people, both religious and secular, 
believe that these substances allow access to some level of entities and or a plane of existence that we are blind to under the constraints of our normal waking consciousness. If this is even possibly true, it is of the utmost importance that we take seriously the positive and negative potential of using psychedelics. Myself and many others can readily attest to the power of these substances to inspire, encourage, repair, and heal, but also the potential of these substances to kick your ass and shake you to your very core, potentially leaving you with more questions than answers. I know from my many conversations with fellow Christians over the last two years that many of you are experimenting with psychedelics or looking forward to a psychedelic experience. I admonish you, my friends, in your exploration of this topic, please exercise discernment. Be cautious and thoughtful. Do not risk your physical, mental, spiritual, or financial health. Many people have had extremely negative experiences pursuing psychedelics, and often not due to the substances themselves, but just as often as a result of consulting with dishonorable people within the psychedelic community. Many people have been violated psychologically, sexually, and financially by research clinicians, psychologists, bro shamans, and native practitioners. This movement is full of good-hearted people seeking the best for you, as well as unscrupulous, egotistical predators who are happy to take advantage of you. Proceed wisely. If you believe that you must have a psychedelic experience, please take the time and effort to ensure that you are interacting with honorable and well-vetted people, not just some shaman dude your cousin introduced you to at a rave. I understand how compelling the idea of a psychedelic experience can be, especially if you are desperate for positive change in your life, and everywhere you turn, you hear the good news of psychedelics. But have enough love and respect for yourself to ensure your safety, and most importantly, your relationship with God Almighty. I believe psychedelics can, when used with wisdom and discernment, be helpful to some people. But it is in God that we live and move and have our being. And it is my belief that it is in living in unity with Christ and his church that we will ultimately find our peace and fulfillment. With that, I bid you adieu. And until we meet again at the intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you.